I'm going to bring a family up here. Um, this will officially be the largest group we've brought up. They uh, kept inviting people to the party. Oh, could you grab that mic? Thank you. Um, I didn't know who was going to end up here. Um, some of their kids I like, some of them I don't, but I was just, I was like, whatever, we'll, we'll take whoever. But I'll just say this because it's hard to go through everybody. This is the Hall family. There you go. Um, uh, the Halls have been a part of Cornerstone for a long time. They're one of the families that my wife and I have gotten to know. They're, they're dear friends. Um, they've, they've had to suffer through all of our children in different ways. Um, the foster kids we've had, the kids that we've adopted, and in a lot of ways, um, they've, uh, they've played a phenomenal role, not only in our kids, but just personally in our own life. So what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to turn them loose to kind of share a story that happened in their life to just kind of frame the victory of Jesus a little bit. So why don't you tell us a little about, about the story we talked about? Could you, could you, Steve? Check, check. Good morning. My name's Steve. For those of you who don't know me. Wife Jen, my wife Jen, my son Jake, his wife Ashley, other daughter Sheridan, other daughter Allie, her husband Cameron. And we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to talk about our other son, Logan, who um, when he was 10, he went to heaven. And that was about almost 12 years ago. Um, it was July 23rd, 2006. A really, really hot day, and we let him go for a really long bike ride to a friend's house that was uh, way out of our comfort zone. Um, so he went on that ride, and then uh, he and his friend rode all the way back up, and um, we swam and had lunch and hung out. Everybody was there. I think it's kind of a blur. Try and forget it. Kind of. Um, and then he went for a bike ride just down the street with his same friend and um, his friend came in the house we were sitting just relaxing at the table and his friend came in and said uh, Logan fell and he wants his dad so uh, so I just went down and uh, down the street and he was just laying on the grass um, but he was unconscious. He was breathing, but he was unconscious. Um, um, then trying to decide, I'm a firefighter. My son's a firefighter too. Um, trying to decide whether to call 911 or just take him. Um, I thought it'd be faster just to take him. So I forgot who brought the car. But they brought the car down. Um, they told Jake protecting his mom said, um, stay home. Um, so Jake and Allie rode in the back of the car with Logan and um, our next door neighbor, Andrew, drove us to the hospital. And in route, I called my station and was asking for medical advice from the paramedics that I worked with. And by the time we got to the hospital, the fire department knew they... Um, they're already ready to have a, a helicopter. And they uh, had people there. Our, one of our EMS supervisors, I think, was already there at the Simi Valley Hospital. And um, because of his situation, they wouldn't use our helicopter. And they ended up using a life flight. And they wouldn't let us ride with him because they said it was too much. So um, they helicoptered him to Children's. He had a uh, brain bleed of some sort. Um, and um, he had brain surgery, and then um, we just waited, and it was 10 days in the hospital. And um, Cornerstone Church was amazing. They were there the whole time. Uh, but he uh, he didn't make it. He uh, it was too much damage, and he was just on life support basically. So um, yeah, uh, so he went went to heaven. That's the basic story. 
how did, and because one of the things we talked about was just how God prepared you guys beforehand. Maybe do you want to just speak to that? <laughs> he um, tapped out. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny looking back, I can see how he prepared us when we were in it. Closer. Um, when we're in it, you know, you don't, you don't realize. But one of the big things is that he brought us to Simi Valley. We used to live in Sun Valley, and... Um, we were very happy there, and I was going to church and taking the kids. Steve was not a believer, um, and I honestly thought he just never would come to know Christ, that we would just always be that couple. Um, but we came to a party in Simi, and um, I remember being at the house and saying, if I could live on this street, I would move to Simi Valley. And Shout out, Curtis. <laughs> and um, so a few months later, our friend that, whose home we were at called and said, there's a home going into foreclosure behind us. Um, so I ended up calling that number. They didn't even know how I knew that house was coming on the market. Um, we put our house on the market um, in Sun Valley. It fell out, out of escrow twice. Um, it's crazy who ended up buying that house. Um, and in the interim, I came out here because I wanted to experience the community that I would be living in um, with the kids that we would be living in. I spent a lot of time alone and with the kids because Steve's gone a lot. So I wanted to bring him to the park and to church. And so our friend recommended Cornerstone. And I remember sitting, we were in that little NPR, and um, Francis was not here. They were all, all the men were on a men's retreat houseboating. And I remember thinking, holy cow, if there's ever going to be a retreat that my husband would go on, it would be water skiing. Because he loves to water ski. And so um, when the next retreat came, Andrew, our neighbor, invited Steve. And I encouraged him to go. I said, just go for the water skiing. If nothing else, go where you don't have me nagging at you that it's lunchtime. And, um, and so he went, and uh, he got baptized in Lake Mead. And, uh, yeah. And... Um, came home and immediately was immersed in Bible studies and um, just really stepped up as the leader um, of our home. Um, there's no way we could make this through it if we weren't both on the same page. Um, some other things that I feel like God kind of prepared me with were conversations that I had with Logan. Um, that same summer, um, he went to camp uh, through here, through Ascent, and um, he wanted to go so badly, and, and I hadn't really prepared, and I remember we had to get the uh, um, deposit down, and we were leaving on vacation. We are literally, like, scrounging in the car looking for money so I could give Christian the deposit. Um, and then I said, well, Logan, what about a friend? Do you need a friend? I called all my friends to see if their kids could go. Nobody could go. And so he was going by himself, which just mortified me because I would never do anything like that on my own. And... Um, and I remember even putting him on the bus. I had this thought, he, it was time to get on the bus, and nobody else was getting on the bus. And he got on the bus alone. And I remember we walked him on. I'm like, don't you want to wait to sit with somebody? And he's like, no, I'll be, I'll be fine. And I just thought even that little tidbit this week was like, I'm going to be okay, Mom. I'm, I'm alone. I'm going to be okay. Um, and after... Um, his time at camp, asking him what he learned. I remember him saying, we are to reflect to the image of Christ. And I thought, wow, you're 10, and you get it. Um, and so again, I think that was just God like assuring us that he's going to be okay, and that we know where he is. Um, and some other little things, that conversations. He was the only one of our four children that ever asked me about heaven or dying or what that would be like. Um, again, didn't seem um, like anything until, until after the fact, you know, when we're kind of reminded. Um, so that's what I am. Great. I don't know who's going to answer this next one, but where, where over the last 12 years have you guys seen kind of the victory of Christ most in this, in this particular event? So I don't know who you're handing off to. Um, for me, I was eight, so I was pretty little. Um, but... I feel like in this situation, your family could either fall apart or come together. And being little, I just looked up to everyone around me, and they all clung to Jesus. And I'm so grateful for that, because over the last 12 years, I've continued to do that, and I just followed in their 
footsteps and just did what they did because that's what I was supposed to do. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that they did that and didn't turn away from him because now we all have a relationship with Christ and we'll get to see my brother again. I have a paper. <laughs> I didn't trust myself. I'm too nervous. Um, I wasn't planning on sharing, um, but then I was just going to be here for moral support. Um, but then when I heard that you guys have been specifically focusing on victory in Christ, um, I felt like the Lord wanted me to share uh, a part of my story. So normally, you know, Christians in here, we share our testimonies and our stories often. And obviously, this is the biggest part of my story. Um, and two years ago, I had what I call a breakthrough. And I just think it's really cool that the Lord has continued my testimony. It's not just this happened to me 12 years ago and I'm surviving and I believe in the Lord. He's given me so much more victory specifically two years ago. Um, and so I wanted to share kind of that story with you guys um, because it's just been so amazing in my life. And um, I hope that it'll encourage any of you guys struggling um, to really embrace the freedom that we can have in God and in the Holy Spirit. Um, so obviously, since Logan died, I have been struggling with depression. And then uh, as of like five, six years ago, anxiety started creeping in there because those are, you know, best friends. Um, and so I have been struggling with this for a good portion of my life. Um, and I would have small victories here and there. Um, obviously, I, I had my faith the whole time. I believe I was continuing to mature in my faith that entire time. But uh, my husband had a good analogy um, where depression for me was kind of like a train. Um, and I'm in my car, and I stop. The lights start flashing. I can hear the trains coming. The bars go down, and I just kind of sit there and don't really, there's nothing I can do to stop the train. It just comes, and I just passively observe as it comes through my life. Um, and I was very much kind of taking like the victim standpoint where I was like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to get through it. And then when the train finally passes, then I can get back to normal life. Um, but I really didn't have control over when the train came or what to do when it did came, when it did come. Um, so that's kind of how I had been living the past 10 years. Um, and I was continually trying to grow in that. And so I was always seeking, you know, trying to grow in my faith and um, break bad habits that come with anxiety and depression and really working on it. So I was very intentional, even though it still had a very um, big control over my life. Um, but two years ago, I was still working through stuff. <laughs> and um, the Lord used a mentor, an older uh, woman that I had been meeting with. Um, and my husband to ask me some really hard questions to process through that I hadn't thought of or um, really wanted to think of. And I was just really thankful because those questions led to me realizing that I hadn't given everything to God. Um, and we're supposed to give, you know, cast all of our anxieties on him, give everything to him, abide in him. Um, and I had done as much as I thought I could, and I realized through the Holy Spirit and through these people in my life that I hadn't given him the pain and my hurt. Um, I felt very entitled to that. Like, no, I, I lost my brother. I deserve to feel this way, and I want to feel this way. I want this pain. Um, it was a weird, like, this is how I remember him. This is how I honor him. Like, this is mine. I, it is not God's. It's mine. Um, and once I realized that, I could process it, you know, be humbled and swallow my pride and realize, no, this is, everything's the Lord. Literally everything I have is because of God. Like, why do I think I deserve any of this? Um, and so I was able to surrender everything. I'm sure I'll continue to learn that there's other stuff I haven't surrendered, but, um, two years ago, that was a big deal for me. And in that moment of surrender, I felt this weight 
just lift off my chest because I would describe my depression to Cameron like I just have this weight and this knot in my chest all the time. And sometimes it gets unbearable and other times it's just always there um, in varying degrees. And in that moment, it went away. Um, And so I feel like the past two years have been radically different for me. I still struggle, um, but now... I'm equipped to handle it. Um, I don't feel like it controls me. Um, I feel like I can see it coming, and I, I'm i not afraid of it. I just Im- lean into the Holy Spirit and into the Word of God, and I feel free, and I feel like I really am living victory. I use the word freedom, but when you said victory, I was like, oh, victory is way better, because that's like... <laughs> I'm, you know, it's triumph. It's a big deal. Anybody in here struggling with depression, that's a big deal because um, you know how contr- how much it just controls your entire being. Um, so I wanted to share that um, with you guys because I was hoping that anybody in here that's struggling would be able to know that it's, it's possible, it's a choice, it's a hard choice, um, but it's very possible. Um, and it's all because of what the Lord gives us. And if you surrender whatever you're desperately, you know, death gripping, whatever, give give it to him. He'll take care of it, and you can live in freedom or in victory, um, and then help other people too get through that. Well, the halls are going to be around this service. If anybody even wants to just come up and talk with them, they've been a huge part of, like I said, my personal life, my wife's life, our family's life. But could you all just thank him so much for for just sharing today? All right. Amen. Right on. Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, we're going to try to frame a little bit of this victory um, together. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them. If you don't have Bibles, um, you can uh, totally raise your hand. Uh, we'd be happy to bring you a Bible so that you can, that you can have one. Uh, we're in the book of Revelation, and we are looking at this idea of, of victory. This is a huge concept, and, and, and I, I so agree with what Ali said. I think, I think sometimes we think freedom. And freedom is a wonderful reality. When we come to know Christ, there's so many things that we are freed from. But I think sometimes we forget to frame it in light of it's not just freedom in general. It is the victory of Jesus. Ultimately, any freedom that we have is only because of what Jesus Christ has done in our life. And we're talking over these last few weeks about the future victory of Jesus, but I don't want you to miss this. All that future victory points to is this ongoing in our lives, victories that we experience even today, that because of the work of Jesus, victory is happening. All of you sitting in here today that know Jesus, you are a testimony to the victory of Christ. You are different people because of what Jesus has done. And so as we've been looking at the book of Revelation, one of the things we've been trying to do is to just connect those dots, to connect to this idea that Christ's victory is, and the the word that we found when we looked at it, when Christian was preaching that day, was this idea of blessing. It's this Greek word makarios, which means this ultimate fulfillment, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate contentment, ultimate joy. It It is knowing that all is right in the universe. Ultimately, this is what's going on in the book of Revelation, is we're seeing that no matter what it is our God is in control. He is superseding over everything, moving everything in this wonderful direction in a purpose and a plan. And at the center of it, we also learned that Jesus Christ is right in the middle of it. That the reason we come together and we worship Jesus is not just because of his work on the cross. It's not just because of the work of him coming back from the dead and the tomb being emptied. We celebrate it because ultimately Jesus wins. Like, I don't want anybody to miss that as we go through the book of Revelation. If you miss the fact that Jesus wins, then I have done a terrible job. Jesus wins. And in this victory, this is where blessing comes from. That's the big victory that we were talking about, that big puzzle that is laid out there in that, that box top of how we look at things. It's, and it allows us to pull ourselves back from Revelation and to see that. And I think that's really when I think about the book of Revelation, what it is, is it's an encounter with Jesus. 
When we look through the book of Revelation, we're encountering Christ, we're getting to know him, we're seeing Christ for who he really is, and as we see Christ for who he really is, then there's implications for us that now we're called to live in this world as faithful people. Our Christ, the one that we know and love that rescued us is faithful, and now we're called to be faithful. But it's not just faithful because like, there's no hope to it. No, behind the faithfulness, and this is where everything is leading that we're going to talk about next week, is that there's promise to this. God has so much in store for those that know him. I mean, last week I tried to get into this a little bit, but can you just for a second imagine what is it going to be like when finally we arrive where God has done away with all evil and we are standing in new creation, enjoying God forever, never to face death or tears or anything again. John is just building this to help us to understand that our faithfulness is not for, it isn't for no reason. It has purpose to it and meaning. I think the other thing that we see specifically is, is that once we understand those, is that we're called then to be faithful, not only with a promise, but it's this worthy one, Jesus, that we pour our lives into. He's the one that brings the whole plan together. When we were talking about these idea of seals, when no one else was worthy, into this came the one, the, the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain. And he said, he is worthy. And what Jesus Christ has been doing ever since he rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he is now working and causing all of God's plan to come together. That doesn't mean that it's not going to be without sacrifice. That doesn't mean it's going to be without suffering. All of God's plan will one day make sense. It's even in this case when we talk about a little boy who's died, eventually there's going to come a time where everything is going to click together. It's all going to make sense because ultimately what God is tying all those loose ends together is he's seeking to answer the prayer of Jesus that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All of Revelation is building this direction and it's calling us in and it's moving along and his whole goal in tying up all these loose ends is to make heaven and earth this place where he reigns over everything. But that means then that God is going to eliminate any enemy that's ever stood in his way. Like I think sometimes we think of heaven as this great place where everything is good. But sometimes we don't frame it as a place in which no evil will ever exist. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to wake up today and there was no evil no heartache, no, no depression. Suddenly now it's a world that everything that is stood against God is put away. And not only do we long for the hope that's there, but it's this place in which we truly now have find contentment. And so that means then the world that we live in that's full of hurt and suffering and sacrifice is that we now live with this in mind and we confound the wisdom of the world that though people may die, though we may get sick, though our money might fall apart, though everything that might fall down around us, we know that our treasure is not in this earth, but our treasure is sealed and secure, held forever in heaven. And in the midst of this chaos, the thing he also wants us to understand is that we as Christians, we can't lose our heads. A couple weeks ago, I talked about Star Wars, stay on target, stay on target. I forgot to say the part. Remember in Star Wars why he kept saying stay on target? Because everyone around them was getting blown up. Stay on target, stay on target. This is the rhythm of revelation. And the beauty of this book is God is one by one tying up every loose end. Everything is just in a bow being tied and completed. And what we find now in Revelation 20 is there's three last bows that I believe that is going to be tied up for us so that all things, when we finally enter into the kingdom that God has for us, it's going to be tied up, it's going to be secure, and it's going to be safe. And I think that's really last week when I brought up 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. This is what Peter was talking about. He said, I know people mock you for Jesus not coming back, but literally what God is doing is he is cleansing his earth of everything that is evil. He is setting everything right. He's tying up all the loose ends, but there's three things, like I said, that are going to be remaining. Now, here's the first one when we look at 20, 1 through 3. And just, so just keep this in your head. We're going to be talking about how Jesus is tying up these loose ends. He says in there, he said, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. 
And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. In case you're wondering who that person is, he says it four times from a different angle. And bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit or what's sometimes called the, you see above the bottomless pit, this abyss. And he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not now deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years would end it. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, how is it that now John is explaining that the ends are being tied up? Well, in one case, what you can see in this text is, is that he's cleansing things and he's going to now take this time in a unique way and he's going to take Satan and he's going to set them apart. Now, again, we've talked about this. Some believe this has already happened. It is happening. My particular view is, is that it's something still in the future. Now, there's some reasons why I still think it's in the future. The way that he talks about it in this case is that he is bound. The idea is, is that there's going to come a time in which Satan, and he uses this idea of chains, like a prison is going to be held as this prisoner in this incredible way, and he's going to be held specifically in a prison that he happens to talk about, which is this abyss or this bottomless pit. And just to get the whole idea across, not only is it a bottomless pit, but the idea then he says is that it is also closed or closed up and sealed. Now, if you could just think about for a second, everything that we've been talking about up to now is that in Revelation 12, we know that Satan was, was totally set free. Now, again, under the guidance of the sovereignty of God, and he was roaming free on the earth, and everything that he was doing was deceiving. And in this moment now, you see this. He's being pulled back in this powerful way and so that he can't now deceive the nations any longer. Now, again, what does this have to do with tying anything up? And you're just going to have to go with me. But in 2 Peter 2, there was this place called Tartarus. It was, it, was, it was referenced to this kind of this prison for demons. It was also the place that when it was in, I think in Luke 8, when Jesus had healed the demoniac, the demon said, please don't throw me into that place. There's this place that literally demons are held and held back at bay. It's this place now also, because it's mentioned seven times of, of demons coming out of this in different ways in the book of Revelation. But Satan is going to be held secure, not able to do anything. And here's the key to it, he no longer can deceive the nations. In other words, it's going to be a place, and just imagine this for a second, where Satan doesn't roam free. What does that world look like? And seeing that, though, we find out that he will be loosed at some point. But for right now, there's this temporal holding because this eventual place we're going to learn is in the lake of fire. And bringing this bow together, he's held aside. But now when you go to verse 4, we find out that for this thousand years, which is going to be mentioned seven times in verses 1 through 10, and again, whether it's talking about just a long period or literally a thousand years, there's going to be this extended reign of Jesus on this earth. Now again, Satan's gone, and Jesus is reigning fully on the earth. What does that look like? We see in there, when you look down, is that he saw this thrones, and now we're going to find two groups of people. Seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed, and I don't have the time to go into it, but what he's talking about there is just believers. We see that believers one day will be judging alongside of Jesus, but he adds a second group to that. He said, I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, or those who had martyred, and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, look at this, and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead, he says, don't come to life until the thousand years is over. This is the first resurrection. This means in this kingdom, now keep this in your mind, Satan will not be present in any kind of a way. Jesus will be reigning and ruling apart from anything that, is, that, that has to do with Satan. And God's people will be joining him in this, rulers, this rulership with him on this earth. In other words, this is going to be a phenomenal place to live. We also learn that there won't be people here that it talks about these dead who have not come to life yet. And what he's talking about in this particular context would be any of those that are now being awaited, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, for judgment. 
But the key here is, is that it will be blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Those are those of us who know Jesus, those who even will be killed for their faith, the martyrs, over such the second death has no power. In other words, we won't face what's about ready to come. We're going to talk about that in a little bit in verse 14. But look what our role will be. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So all of you that know Jesus, let me tell you your future. You all, the Bible talks about, are priests already. It's called the priesthood of the believer. It was a huge issue around the Reformation. This is the fulfillment of it. You all here will be priests, but priests to who? Will we be sitting there making sacrifices for people? No, we know the sacrificial system is gone. The idea is, is now in this kingdom, there will be a go-between, is that humanity was designed to be with God, and in being with God, what we're designed to be, we will now have full access into the throne room of God, because now we will be the people that God intended us to be, and we will also now come and, and worship and, and also serve amongst the people, teaching them. In other words, people that are alive at this particular time on this earth will be alive in not only the greatest government all time, where Jesus is reigning, but the greatest religious system of all time where now God's people are serving and sacrificing and ser or serving people, not sacrificing, I took that one out, teaching people, it will be the best possible time to be on this planet. Now again, you're probably asking the question, hey bro, I thought you were gonna tie things up. The apostles thought that. When Jesus Christ was on earth in Acts 1, they asked this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They had in their head an understanding that in the Old Testament, the people expected Israel to now be reestablished in such a way where the Messiah would reign. Now, some people believe the reign is happening right now where Jesus is on his throne in heaven, so the reign is happening in heaven, but this doesn't seem to be a heavenly reign. This seems to be a future kingdom reign. It's a reign that now it shall come to pass, Isaiah 2, when he talks about it, that in latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. In other words, everything will point to Jerusalem and King Jesus. There's another characteristic of it. Look at this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. It won't be lamb chops. The leopard will lie down with the young goat the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. What is it that like? It'll be the one time where the kids say, can I go out and play? And you go, go crazy, go nuts, go play. Now, the reason I think this is being all tied together is this. It seems to be just the best possible kingdom that there could ever be. It is better than what happened after the fall. It's better than what happened under the people of God when we talk about Israel. It's better than what's happened under the church. Everything was what we, they had been waiting for. It's the perfect situation. It's the perfect scenario. Now, here's the question. What would humanity do with it? In verse 7, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, a reference to Ezekiel 38 through 39, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Game over. I don't know how many of you have ever seen Monty Python before. If you haven't, it's don't waste your time, even though I love it. But in Monty Python, there's this very end scene in which everybody, they're charging like, ah, they just flash away, ah, flash away, ah, and then poof, it's over. This is it. 
In other words, it's the final rebellion. It's the final rebellion of humanity, the final rebellion of Satan. In this particular context, here's Satan using humanity like he's always done in a rebellion against God. You see this now that are kind of disposable to him. Gog and Magog, it's a reference just to the idea of rebellion that kind of sits over humanity. And they are deceived to their own destruction. They come out for battle and God in his power, instead of now us going out to war with them, just says, done, consume, over game done what now how does this tie things up I think there's a side of this that even with the perfect scenario humanity rejects God every scenario that's ever been thrown at humanity we still have this tendency to reject God this is the final fulfillment, I think, of Romans 1.18 through 3.20, where he talks about this group of people that were the Jewish people that had the oracles of God, the moralists who knew the right things that he ought to do. It was the Gentiles who had seen God in creation. And now it's this final outpouring. And I think it's just a gracious act of God where he shows that all humanity stands guilty in front of him. There is none righteous, no, not one. It is just this way of God looking out over humanity and saying, even if you get the best scenario, I'm not talking Obama and I'm not talking Trump. I'm not talking any other world leader that's ever been pick one you have as your ruler king jesus inside of the perfect religious system where everything is right and still what does humanity do we reject god it kind of puts a nail in the coffin of people to say you know but what about the person that's never heard what about this scenario what about that scenario even if you put humanity in the perfect scenario our tendency and our predisposition because of who we are as adam's race we have this predisposition to absolutely reject god and here's god now when anybody will stand in front of him one day the outcome will be just guilty no one will be able to say anything. He's lining everything up just right. He's putting it all together so that no matter who stands in front of him, they will stand in front of him in silence. No excuses. They can't blame Satan. Can't blame your wife. Can't blame your husband. Can't blame your parents. Can't blame your kids. Shoot, you can't even blame the dog. All will remain silent in front of him one day. The next bow that he ties up is found in the next verse. And the devil who had deceived them, look at this, was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were, and there they will be tormented day and night forever. In case any of you were wondering, do we live in a kind of a yin and yang, a dualistic universe where there's just good and evil and there are quality? No, at this particular point in history, we will learn there is nothing equal about God and Satan. There's this place that is talked about in Matthew 25, 41, that Jesus talks about those that are going to go there. But he says before he gets there, there's this place that's prepared for the devil and his angels, this place now that's being talked about in Revelation, that God has foretold it. He knew it. Everything was moving in this particular direction. And finally, there comes a time where not only the beast is thrown in, and not only the prophet, and not only the prostitute, and not only sin, and not only death, not only all those different things like Hades, but literally the final one that will get thrown in as far as that crew is Satan. He will be thrown into the lake of fire and people will now see that this one who's deceived the nations, has used the nations, has got them in this way in which the, he, he has used them for his own good would be the way that I would frame it. God says, you're done. And the term that he uses there is this word torment. The word torment carries this idea, literally, that the reason that he's there is that he is one who is guilty. He has punishment that is owed him. 
And it's not just owed him from the standpoint that God is just, but you even see this, it is unrelenting. This concept of this fire that's gonna be burning is unrelenting to the point where literally it will go day and night, it will go throughout the years, it will go forever and ever as this testimony to the justice and the truth and the rightness of God. When God smells that smoke that comes up from that pit, he will be reminded that he is just and he has defeated any enemy that has ever stood before him. Our God reigns. And John conveys this to the people. The first bow that gets tied up, nobody's going to have a word to say. The second bow that gets tied up is now the evil one. So what's the third bow? He said, then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. Look at this. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Not only is there coming a time in which Satan will be cast into the lake of fire forever as a testimony to God of his rightness and his truth and his justice, his kingship over all things. Not only is it now people will be shut up, but the next one is finally God coming to judge. When you see this, the idea of this judge is that there's no place to hide. It's a judgment without escape. No one will be able to hide behind anything. No one will be able to pull themselves back. It's the judgment in, in Daniel 7. He talks about it from this vantage point. He said, I said, I, I looked and thrones were placed and the ancients of days took his seat and just look why they're trying to flee from him and they can't. His clothing was white as snow. His hair of, of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. The stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousands and thousands served him. But look at this. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and look at this, the books were opened. And I saw the great and dead, or the dead, great and small. He saw them from every walk of life. It didn't matter their socioeconomic condition, didn't matter their race, their language, their ethnicity. It didn't even matter how they died. Look down at verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were there. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them. Now here's the key about these books, according to what they had done. Go back up there. It says, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. There was alongside of these books. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Here's all these people that God has given ample grace, ample mercy. He is totally called out from the heavens. He's called out from his people. He's called out in our conscience of moralism. He's called out to the church. He's now called out even on this earth where Jesus Christ reigned as king. He is called and beckoned in graciousness to humanity. And now what they're going to do is they're going to stand in front of him by this book of deeds, this register of human activity. And the assumption is, is that everyone fails. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, Revelation tells us. Now, on one level, you would think, okay, well, there's one last hope. There's this book of life. But he says in there that in this book of life, if your name was not found in it, look at this context, you also were thrown into the lake of fire. Just sit with me for a second in that. There was this thought in the back of their head, maybe, maybe in some way my deeds have, have weighed themselves out like so many different religious groups tell us that the good things outweigh the bad things. I, I went through the right mantra of all these different things, but ultimately the judgment of on, on humanity, regardless if you were on one end of it on the good scale or the bad scale, however humans do that, because all of us are still in Adam, because all of us are in the human race, because none has seeked after God, no, not one, all people will now stand guilty before him and in standing before them in their guilt, the next thing is, like this book of hope, this book of life that they're going to look into. And the outcome is, is your name was not found there and the person was thrown into the lake of fire. How awful.
Again, I know sometimes we don't talk about this, and I, and I do. I'm, sometimes I feel like we try to scare people into heaven, but I just need us to feel the text. All that don't know Jesus one day will face this reality. Feel that. Now, don't get me wrong. All of you in Christ, you will find your name written in that book of life. And oh, the joy of finding your name written in the book of life. Not because of anything you've done. Not because of who you are in and of yourself. But only because of the work of Christ. This is why churches proclaim the gospel of Jesus to people. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus to people because that now is the means of their salvation. The means of them understanding who is God and the work of Jesus on the cross. The work and now his resurrection and coming back from the dead, the work of the church in proclaiming this great news, we proclaim it out to the people so that none are without any excuse whatsoever, but in the hope that if they hear this message, they will believe, and now they will avoid this reality of those that have stood in rebellion against God, just the dishonor of standing in front of a holy God and telling him, I don't care about you. Ultimately, all those now that come to Christ will not receive shame, they will not receive guilt, they will only receive now this blessing of being in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus today, let me just say this. You do not want to be caught before the throne outside of Christ. I don't know who all of you are. But I'm telling you this. This event is not Hollywood. It's not a neat little moralistic story. It's reality. We're beckoned to bend the knee today because you don't want to bend it later. Verse 14 says, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that's where he was thrown. And a lot of time what we try to do is we try to get around this in different ways. One of the words that's sometimes used is this word called universalism. Universalism is, is, is the idea that eventually everybody will come to know Jesus. They might pay a penalty inside of this lake of fire for a while, but eventually they're going to acknowledge that God is truly God. They're going to embrace him in some way, some fashion, some form, and God is going to rescue him out of that. In other words, all will be saved. I can't find that in the text. The church has also talked about this, and I think there's many godly men throughout church history that have talked about this idea of annihilationism. Annihilationism is this idea that they will spend time being punished in this place for a set amount of time, and after they've been punished for that set amount of time, they will then go into a non-existence. They will not exist anymore. That truly what hell is, is going into a non-existence where I never, ever exist. And again, there's been good godly men throughout time that have believed this, but I don't think this is the context of this passage. When it talks about it in 2 Thessalonians, it says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, look at that, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer punishment and eternal, here's this word, destruction, and that's why we're thinking, oh, maybe that's the case, but it can also be translated as eternal death. This idea that it's talked about the second death there, and away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Revelation 14, we've already been there. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. I just think this kind of puts us towards the idea that, well, I'm going to not lie to you. I hope there's annihilationism. I so hope there is. But I think the text is clear. Those that choose to reject Jesus Christ will spend an eternity in torment. And I think there's two sides to this. One side I've already referenced. If you don't know Jesus, today's the day. You're going to learn what it's like opposite of the lake of fire next week. What the new heavens and the new earth look like. 
But I think the thing that's been for me, I know God's in control. I know he is. But you know how we just float through life and we forget to look at people that are bearing the very image of God and we don't even think I should engage them to share this great news. There's people I love that I've shared Jesus with that, gosh, I've shared and I've shared. I've cried out to them. I've begged them to come to know Jesus. But this is just heavy. It's heavy to think about it. And I think that tension is supposed to exist for us. We're supposed to ache now because later we won't ache. And it's not because it won't be there. It's now finally there will come a day where it will all make sense. It will be explained. We will understand why God did what he did. And I long for that day and understanding the whole kind of picture of what he was doing. But for right now, it should be this compelling force of begging people to respond to the greatest message ever in Jesus Christ so that one day they won't face the reality of a God who is just and right and true, but also full of wrath. He's not a spoiled child. He's not out of control. But there are serious consequences for rejecting that God. To be made in the image of God is a serious thing. It means we're eternal. It means that we exist now, not forever backwards, forever backwards but forever into the future. I think this is something that should resonate with us. I prayed different over my kids this morning. Gosh. Gosh, I just sat there and prayed over them. Went outside this morning and I just, I was supposed to come here and study and maybe probably you think, oh, you should have studied more. I just walked my street. Gosh, I looked at those houses. They're real people. I just begged God, God, would you give me the grace, the humility, and the boldness to talk with these people about the greatest message ever of Jesus? Now, how I want to finish is, is aren't you a glad that you have a God that ties up all the loose ends? All those things that just seem so out of control, our God is tying them and tying them and tying them. And after they're all tied up, comes Revelation 21 and 22 that you'll have to come back in two weeks to hear about. <laughs> but in the meantime, in the name of the Father, who sits in absolute power and authority, who is just and true and right but gracious and forgiving and merciful. In the name of the Son who came to rescue humanity, rescuing them not just from this world and its problems, but rescuing us from standing in front of that holy God so that one day we won't stand in shame, but we'll stand in honor. In the name of the Holy Spirit who seals you as a believer till the day of redemption, May God bless you this week as you live knowing there are no loose ends with God. Amen.